Section 1 of The Wounded Name. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Eileen. The Wounded Name by D. K. Broster. Chapter 1, Part 1. Quote, o good Horatio, what a wounded name! Things standing thus unknown shall live behind me. End quote. Hamlet, Act Five, Scene Two. Quote, How shall I find that friend, of the rare friends, the departed, when the delicate revels end, and the maskers have all departed? At a sudden hour and a drear, for the sweetest hour is the sternest, thou shalt know who held thee dear, whose hand was thine in earnest. End quote. Herbert Trench. Chapter 1 Running Water. Quote, Without a horse and a dog and a friend, man would perish. The gods gave me all three, and there's no gift like friendship. Remember this when you become a young man, for your fate will turn on the first true friend you make. End quote. Rudyard Kipling, Puck of Puck's Hill, on the Great Wall. 1. The lady who was writing at the Rosewood Escritoire near the window paused, and with the feather end of the quill traced along the days of the month on a little calendar headed 1814, which was propped up behind the inkstand. April the 12th, she murmured, and wrote it at the top of the already finished letter under her hand. She was not young, 45 at least, but she was distinctly charming in her very short-waisted close-fitting gown of lilac sarsenet. The irregular-shaped room, cool and fresh and sunlit, opened by a small bow window on her left hand onto a garden that could not have been other than English. And she herself looked English, yet she had just signed a French name at the bottom of her letter, while over the mantelpiece hung the portrait of a middle-aged man with a refined and thoughtful face who did not even look English. The door opened and a man's voice could be heard speaking to someone outside. Laurent, is that you? asked the lady, without looking up. She was sealing her letter. Oh, dearest, are you going out? Will you take this note to Madame Tante, if you're passing? Where are you going, by the way? Oh, fishing, responded the owner of the voice, coming in. Yes, of course I will take it for you, Maman. But isn't it the anniversary of something or other, so that the ants will be plunged in appropriate gloom, and will not approve of my occupation? The lady held up her face to his kiss. No, I do not think it is the anniversary of any calamity today, otherwise they would not have agreed to come to supper. Once again she ran her quill along the almanac. Oh, there's nothing now, I think till Louis the Seventeenth's death in June. You will be careful about the river, will you not, Chérie? 
It must be in flood, still, after the terribly severe winter we have had. And probably the gigantic salmon that I shall hook will pull me in, and prophesied the young man teasingly. Or perhaps I shall be taken with vertigo and fall in. Or a tidal wave may come up from the sea. The smile in his clear grey eyes spread to his mouth. I am so glad that I shall never be a mother. You are a very wicked son, retorted the lady, laughing, too, and she pulled down his head and kissed the crisp fair hair that, after the fashion of the day, clustered rather thickly on his forehead. In France, you know, you will have to show me much more respect from all I hear of the authority of a mother there. A respect, exclaimed Laurent de Courtemar, as he looked at the girlish figure. Oh, how can I respect the authority of a mother who only appears to be about five years older than I am myself? Am I then to respect you more in Paris and to love you less? How must they run in inverse proportion? Go and fish, Laurent, instead of talking nonsense, and forget that we shall so soon be living in France. How oh, I rather wish that I could, unpatriotically remarked the young Frenchman, taking up the note from the escritoire. Is it wrong to be so fond of this country, because one was born and brought up in it? He looked up at the portrait of his father over the mantelpiece. If only this had come four years ago. And Madame de Courtomer followed his gaze and sighed. Although Fate's keys had opened the gate so long shut, and her voice, through the bugles of the advancing allies, was calling the stout Bourbon, Louis the Eighteenth, from his retreat at Hartwell to the throne of his ancestors, that exile would never return to his native land. And since his widow was English, and his son had never set foot in France, though both duty and sentiment might call them over the channel to the young man's patrimony, Neither of them could welcome the summons in quite the same spirit as he would have done. For to them it was not returning. The Allies are nearly at Paris, and Napoleon's star has set, said Laurent, turning away. But, wonderful as it is, I do not somehow feel any more exhilarated than you do, Maman, for, after all, it is the bayonets of the foreigner which are bringing back the king and I don't know my French relatives, and I shall miss my English ones. Madame de Courtemar, rising, slipped her arm through his. Oh, take care, darling, that the ants do not hear you talking like this. And to them, as you know, it matters little who brings back the king, provided he is brought back. And to regret Devonshire would be the last offence. Oh, nevertheless, I shall regret it, persisted Laurent, who did not easily change his affections. You will, too, I know. Still, we are coming back here every year, are we not? Yes, I must start. And this is an invitation for Madame Tante to sup with us tonight? Do you want an answer? No, said his mother, studying him with a smile. It is only to confirm an arrangement already made. But I should like a salmon. You shall have one, replied her son confidently. And now, 
permit me to practice taking a Parisian farewell of my respected mother, the Comtesse Henri de Courtemar, née Seymour. And he kissed her hand with a flourish. Two. Soon afterwards he mounted into his English gig, with his English groom behind him in charge of his rod and tackle, and drove down the village street in one of the most English of counties. But he was thinking, A few weeks more, and I shall no longer be Mr. Laurent Courtemac of Quinton House, but Monsieur le Comte de Courtemac in the family mansion that I've never seen, in the Faubourg Saint-Germain, where Madame Tante, at least, will be in their element. For Laurent's three great-aunts, Madame Tante de Roy, so christened by him on the analogy of those daughters of Louis XV, who were thus known in the days of Louis XVI, were of a royalist and Catholic fervor truly overwhelming. And, of course, once in France, they would all, in French fashion, live together. As, indeed, they almost did now, settled in one small Devonshire village. But at least they were not all under one roof, and Laurent was not quite sure that he was longing for that increased proximity. He soon pulled up before a door in a red brick wall, and in a few seconds was walking up a tiled path to the habitation of Mesdemoiselles de Courtemar. He knew that he must deliver his note in person, for the ants would consider it unpardonable if he merely left it without paying his respects. The countenance of Augustine, their elderly precise maid, bore signs of excitement. Yes, Monsieur le Comte, she said in response to his query at the door. Madame are within, and they are receiving company. Oh, really, said Laurent, in the morning? A traveller, Monsieur le Comte, an old acquaintance just come over from France, Monsieur le Baron de Vic. Laurent, by now in the hall, with an engraving of Louis the Sixteenth mounting the scaffold on one side of him, and a bust of the Duc d'Angiens wreathed in immortel on the other, murmured, "Oh, this is indeed great news." For he seemed to remember having heard that in times inconceivably remote. Monsieur de Vic had been a suitor for the hand of Tante Bonne, or was it that he had been a flame of Tante Odile's? And, before he bowed respectfully over the hands of his venerable relatives, he beheld a withered but well-preserved old gentleman, yet younger, surely, by a decade, than any of them, rise from a chair at that disappointingly regal distance from all of the old ladies, from Tante Odile's majestic piety and grey curls, from Tante Clotilde's even greater majesty and even more denuded, and therefore even more imposingly becapped head, and from the long-faded prettiness of Tante Bonne, the youngest, who wore the smallest cap of any and the least hideous cameo, and no jet at all, so that Tante Clotilde, had more than once been known to accuse this eighty-year-old junior of hers of an ineradicable tendency to levity. But Tante Clotilde herself had undergone a change since Lady Day, when a fair wind from France had blown so many clouds out of the royalist sky. Her Majesty was not less, 
her loyalism even more pronounced, but a ribbon of a discreet maroon shade had replaced the black moiré around her cap, and her manner to all and sundry was marked by an unexampled benignancy. So that Laurent, when he saluted her dry, shriveled hand with a morning ring, was almost startled by the sensible flavor with which she kissed him on either cheek, for, though the greeting was not a novelty, it was often frosty. Tante Clotilde considered that Laurent spoke English too well, and his mother's habit of occasionally calling him Laurence, a girl's name, was an abomination to her. But, willy-nilly, her great-nephew would have to be entirely French now. Monsieur de Vic, on introduction, made him a bow of another generation, and the young man, having duly delivered his note, was inspired to announce his hope that if the newcomer were staying the night, he would give the ladies his escort up to Kington House. This addition to the party would, he assured him, procure his mother and himself the greatest pleasure. After the proper amount of pressing, the old gentleman accepted, and Laurent thereupon began to make efforts to extricate himself from his great-aunt's drawing-room. But this was not so easy. Monsieur de Vic, whose fervor appeared to be almost equal to that of the old ladies, had embarked on a rapturous description of the enthusiasm manifested at the entry of the Duc d'Angoulême, the king's nephew, into Bordeaux about three weeks before, the news of which had caused such joyful anticipations in the little court at Hartwell. And since, after all, Laurent was French, and on the point of treading French soil, the narration was not devoid of interest. Only it had not the charm of entire novelty, and he would rather have heard it at another time. It must, therefore, have been a rather unfortunate spirit of contradiction which led him to remark that Brittany and Vendée, for all their long and glorious struggle on behalf of monarchy, had not at this particular juncture played much part in the eminent restoration of the royal house. Oh, qu'est-ce, monsieur, exclaimed the baron, shocked. And Tante Clotilde said, A fie, nephew, in her deepest voice, and he was assured that under the rule of the Corsican, more than thirty secondary chiefs had perished in that region for the cause, and their names began to shower upon him. Oh, I take back my remark, cried the young man, laughing. And besides, after all, Mittant, you are not mentioning a leader who is alive, which is better. What about that fellow in Brittany, Loiseleur, the fowler, who is always luring the enemy into difficult positions, and who is personally so lucky and that he is supposed to possess a charm of some sort? Or is that all a myth, and his defense of the burning mill also? How Monsieur de Vic almost started from his chair. What an extraordinary thing that you should speak of Loiseleur today, monsieur, he exclaimed. No, indeed he is no myth. I've seen him. I saw him, though for the time I had forgotten it, no later than yesterday, and on the very packet which brought me from Brest to Plymouth. The Plymouth packet? Why, what was he doing there? ejaculated Laurent and the old ladies in the same moment. Oh, I do not in the least know, madame, replied the visitor. 
and as I spent all the time of the voyage most miserably in the cabin below, I knew nothing of our distinguished passenger till we were disembarking at Plymouth. But then, as we were massed on the deck, eager for the shore, I heard a compatriot say, oh, that's he, and that's Loiseleur. And so I saw the personage pointed out, a rather stern, rough-looking man of fifty or so, with thick, dark hair, somewhat unshorn, a real Chouan type. Greatly moved, I wished to shake him by his heroic hand, but in the press I could not, and I lost sight of him thereafter. Owing to his amulet, perhaps, observed Laurent idly. Oh, but I had a notion that he was quite young, and this famous fighter, and that he was a gentleman, entitled, in fact. Of course, I must have been wrong. Now, if you will excuse me, Mittant. Yes, I, too, had previously thought that Loiseleur was gently born, said Monsieur de Vic slowly, for he bears an old and honoured name, that of La Rosterie, but this man could not have been a gentleman. Yet that does not prevent. And no, indeed, cried the noble dames, generously waiving the claims of their caste to exclusive leadership. Think of the great, the sublime, the sainted Catholinon, a mason's son. Think of Stofflet, a gamekeeper. Or think of Cadoudal. Think of Guillemont. Or think of a salmon, said Laurent irreverently to himself. And by concentrating his willpower on that object, he did at last succeed in making his escape. But as he drove between the high hedges, making for a chosen spot some five miles up the river, he found his mind running, despite himself, on the twenty years of struggle in the never-conquered west of France. He had been too young to take part in its earlier manifestations, and it was only in the last eighteen months or so that these had begun again, often with the formation of bands of refractaires, conscripts who would not serve Napoleon, led by gentlemen who equally refused. And among these was the well-nigh legendary Loiseleur, audacious, undefeated, almost invisible, so swiftly and mysteriously did he move and strike. Jeune homme du plus brillant courage, adoré par ses hommes, as Laurent had heard him called. The double encomium was certainly borne out by his famous defence of the mill at Penisque, where he and eighteen men were said to have kept five hundred imperialists, troops of the line, at bay for more than four hours, till the soldiers were at last obliged to send for reinforcements, and contrived to burn the place over their heads. And even then, the little band had operated a retreat almost more wonderful than their defence. And now, if Monsieur de Vic were correct, this gallant fighter was in England, a shaggy, middle-aged peasant, not, after all, the young man of Laurent's own class who had seized the opportunity which he had missed. For it must be rather fine to have contributed by something more than prayers and wishes to restore Louis the Eighteenth to that throne of his ancestors, which, in a few weeks, he would almost certainly mount. 3. But these reflections were totally forgotten an hour later, when the young Frenchman was standing, in his high leather boots, 
the water swirling about his legs, casting hopefully over the particular pool in which it was impossible that there should not be a fish. Maman was right, though he should not tell her so, about the river. It was running so strongly that, as Laurent moved slowly forward, he used considerable caution before he followed one foot by the other, for though he stood in shallow, broken water, there was enough stream to take him off his legs if he trod on a slippery stone or dropped unexpectedly into even a small hole. Nevertheless, it was not really the strength of the stream which prevented Monsieur de Courtemar from immersing himself even to the fifth button of his waistcoat, which was then accounted the maximum depth. But the fact that after the severe cold which had once followed this exploit, he had promised his mother never to repeat it. Indeed, in wading at all, he was doing more than the majority of fishermen ever thought of attempting. The long twenty-foot rod bent. He cast again a little farther over the sliding, deeper water near the opposite bank, which there was flat and pebbly and sprinkled with low shrubs. Yet the deepest part of the channel was below it. A no luck, not the ghost of a rise. Perhaps there was a little too much flood, after all, though the water was perfectly clear. Laurent thought he would try a change of fly. He reeled up and caught the line. But as he was detaching the fly he had been using, rather clumsily, for his fingers were cold, he heard, somewhat to his annoyance, quick steps on the pebbles of the other side. He did not desire a possibly loquacious spectator. Finding, however, after a moment or two, that the owner of the steps did not address him, he glanced up. A young man, a gentleman, was standing on the opposite bank looking at him. As Laurent raised his head, he lifted his hat and said, in fair but obviously foreign English, oh, Can you tell me, sir, where I shall find a bridge across this river? I've deceived myself of the road. Monsieur de Courtemar recognized, in the flavor of the accent and the turn of the idiom, an undoubted compatriot, though at first glance the speaker did not look French, particularly in coloring. As he stood there bareheaded, the April sun struck warmly on hair of an unusual bronze tint, a hue that had no real trace of red in it, and yet that was not brown. He was tall, carefully dressed, and had a noticeably graceful and easy carriage of the head, and indeed of his whole person. So much Laurent took in, before he replied pleasantly. Oh, there is no bridge, I regret to say, monsieur, within less than two miles of here. The nearest is at Oakford. At his replying in French, the stranger seemed surprised, as Laurent had quite expected that he would be. Oh, monsieur also is French, he inquired in that tongue. I have that privilege, replied Monsieur de Courtemac, smiling. Oh, you seem also, monsieur, to have that of walking on the water, or pretty nearly, observed the newcomer. Am I right in supposing that you arrived at your present position from the opposite bank, where I desired to find myself? If you would permit me to join you on your Ararat, I could thence gain the shore, could I not? And he advanced right to the water's edge. 
Oh, good heavens, have a care, cried Laurent, alarmed. I'm in shallow water here, and have enough ado to keep my feet, as it is. But between you and me there is the full force of the current. I don't know how deep the stream is today, and all sorts of nasty holes. Oh, don't think of such a thing, I implore you. The stranger looked down at the smooth water swirling past his feet at remarkable speed. The stream. Yes, I see that it is excessive. But I do so wish myself on that bank. I'm walking from Bidcombe to pick up the bath coach again at Midhampton. And if I have to go out of my way to this bridge of which you have been kind enough to tell me, I shall certainly miss it. And my valise, which I sent on it. Oh, but even that is not worth drowning yourself for, protested Laurent, staggering a little as he spoke. This river is said to claim a life every year. Oh, pray do not be the candidate for 1814. And the bridge at... Oh, damnation! He had dropped his fly. The stream had it in an instant. Laurent stooped involuntarily to grasp at it, as it was whirled out of his reach, lost his balance for a second had to take a hasty step to recover this, slipped on a stone, and the stream had him also. Not without a battle, however, since before it carried him into deeper water, he almost contrived to regain his feet, but was pulled down again by the driving weight of it. As its cold fury rolled him over and over, struggling and gasping, he had a distinct, but surely erroneous, Impression of a shout and a splash from the other bank, quickly forgotten in the stinging interlude which followed, filled to the brim as it was with confused sensations of choking, of a temperature which took his breath away, of thoughts of Maman, of doubts whether he would ever see France now, of a conviction that he must, of course, go with the stream. Oh, but it was so difficult to keep one's head above water, and he wasn't swimming. He was being hurtled. And then, inconceivably, and yet, in a way, expectedly, he was spluttering in the shallows at the bend, his feet touching bottom in that place where the bank was so eaten away. A difficult place to get out at, but where he now most firmly intended to get out, and that instantly. Only the bank was still above his head, and he still had water to his breast, and the bottom was shelving and slippery but he managed to catch a bit of the old staking with one hand. And just then something clutched him from behind by the shoulder. Oh, great God! He had jumped in, then. It was no illusion. Yet how, in the name of fortune? Oh, there's bottom here, gasped Laurent, and without losing his hold of the staking, grabbed in his turn with his other hand and discovered that he had his compatriot by the collar. Have you found your feet? he asked, not wasting speech over his own amazement. I'll try to catch hold of this piece of wood. Then I'll get out somehow and help you out. But we must be careful. The bank is rotten. Oh, monsieur, how could you? How could you do such a hazardous thing? panted Laurent. I... really, words are ridiculous in face of such an obligation... How you're here at all is nothing short of a miracle. You must have jumped, straight into the swiftest part of the current. They were both on the bank by this, 
drenched and coughing and rather like stranded fishes themselves. But Laurent had no desire to laugh, for though their situation might be absurd now, it had narrowly escaped being tragic. The water poured off the would-be rescuer as he raised himself and threw back the soaked hair from which the river had dragged the ribbon. Hair longer than was usually to be seen in 1814. I'm here, monsieur, he replied rather breathlessly, because you pulled me out, and that is plain. How could I stand there watching while the river carried you away? And I accomplished nothing at all. I merely made it more difficult for you to extricate yourself. However, I dare say neither of us was really in danger. We were in danger, responded Laurent seriously, and you far more than I. And I had warned you. As to accomplishing nothing, it is the intention which counts in such cases. His companion was wringing out his sodden locks. Oh, I had the intention of coming across, it is true. Here I am, then. I've saved, how much did you say, and two miles of road? He suddenly smiled. It was a very attractive smile, too. I shall always feel, at any rate, that I owe you the debt, said Laurent rather huskily. And... Oh, thank God that you did not pay the price which you very well might have paid. He held out his hand, wrung the wet hand put into it, and then, jumping to his feet, became very practical. Oh, we must not stay here a moment longer. We will go to the inn, near, have a fire, and get our clothes off at once. Yours, monsieur. And as he looked at their deplorable condition, he became aware that their owner wore a red ribbon in his buttonhole. He must have the cross of St. Louis, then, but he was unusually young for such a distinction. Yours will never be dry, in time for you to continue your journey to Bath. So you will allow me, will you not, the great pleasure of offering you hospitality, for the night at least. I live about five miles from here. You're very kind, indeed, monsieur, said the dripping young man, hesitating. And then he looked at him frankly. I should like it greatly, on condition that you will not tell any of your acquaintances of my foolish shortcut across your river. Her conditions of that sort can be discussed later, responded monsieur de Courtemain, smiling. At present, I think our joint physical condition is what matters. Excuse me if I lead the way. End of section one.